Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Watch If You Dare. And I would have a clever introduction for this episode, but it's too special. And I have quoted, uh, I ate his liver with a can of fava beans and a nice Chianti at my wife so many times, she told me to stop quoting it at her. And that's how my week's been. Uh, But we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast in which myself, the coward, and my co-host, Aaron, the movie Monster Boy, discuss uh, horror movies and just how scary they are and get into fears phobias, cultural relevancy, etc. Hopefully it's stuff that's attainable for you newbies out there and stuff you can gush about if you already love these movies. And with that, Aaron, welcome to the show like always. How are you? What up? Um, Good, I guess. Like, weather here sucks like most of the country, but, you know, we're living in the apocalypse, so it is what it is. I got snow here, baby. Yeah. And then we would like to welcome, first time ever on this show, author VP Morris, who, if you don't know what she does she does the excellent dead letters podcast at dead letters pod on twitter it is an audio drama centered around a young woman named fiona who starts getting these letters and they start off with her going into her family it's it's been a minute because i think you had finished up that first season a while ago so i haven't listened to it in a while but uh welcome to the show v yeah thanks for having me on i'm super excited uh yeah i did wrap the first season of the dead letters um about a year ago because in the meantime, I had a baby, and that takes all of my focus, so I wanted to do a season two, but hopefully I'll get to that this year. Awesome, but we are also excited to hear that you have a book coming out called Shadowcast, mm-hmm. and I believe the release date is February 25th? Yes. So by the time our listeners are hearing this, it'll be out probably within like the next week or two, mm-hmm. so please go pre-order that. You can pre-order that at blackrosewriting.com. Again, the name of the book is Shadowcast, and the author is VP Morris. Yeah, I'm super excited to have that uh, coming out. It does uh, feature a true crime podcast. So if you like podcasts and fiction, it's kind of like the perfect little meeting of the two. Yeah, I, I saw the premise of it. And it's interesting because peek behind the curtain, you uh, you were the one who actually selected this episode when we were kind of brainstorming having you coming on. Swung for the gates too. Like, yeah. This is definitely one of the major ones. So I appreciate that you were just like, cool, I would like to come on and I want to cover Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> yeah. You had talked about it being kind of a, a big focal point in inspiration for a lot of your work especially Mm -hmm. specifically this book but something that I like is like when you read the synopsis and it it has your character starting this true crime podcast that kind of goes into this case that affected her life it's just one of those things I kind of sat back and I was just like oh yeah we are now in that age where like that's totally an extremely legit interesting premise for like a true crime story of just kind of embracing like new technology and new ways Mm -hmm. of communicating with people so um, I am very interested to read this uh, book when it drops I like that idea of podcast host being kind of the main character Uh, that's a very good idea yeah I said it in 2012 right when podcasting was like starting so it's not you know it's still like this newer frontier I mean it's still pretty new in the grand scheme of things but but I liked that. I was really inspired a lot by Serial because that kind of was like the big one that got a bunch of people on this like true crime wave. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's a very similar setup of like each episode that she hosts is like trying to go through one person who could have possibly done the crime 
and figuring out if that was a viable option or not. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because we have seen a big resurgence in true crime popularity. And I would argue that a big chunk of it has to be given to podcasting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Three of the biggest podcasts in the world right now are Serial, My Favorite Murder, and Last Podcast on the Left. Mm -hmm. And all three of those are heavily true crime. I think My Favorite Murder and Serial are strictly just true crime. Last Podcast does, you know, supernatural comedy Mm -hmm. as well. But but yeah, I think that capitalizing on true crime and maybe adding more true crime horror is a great idea. But it's just so fascinating with this movie coming out. uh, When did this movie originally drop? In 1991. We are on the 30th anniversary this year. Mm -hmm. We are very, very just a few weeks away from when it actually theatrically released. So we might even overlap with it when this episode comes out. So good timing. Yeah, it's very good timing. And just my point was that this movie is essentially a true crime horror movie and it did so well in the early 90s. So I think true crime has always been in the back of our brains. It's just that Mm -hmm. right now it's really surging. Yeah. Well, V, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into writing and podcasting specifically and what horror as a genre has kind of meant to you. What initially has piqued your interest? What do you get out of the genre as a whole and how does that kind of influence your work? Um, Well, I've been writing since I was 11. Not good because I was 11 and I was using like a Lisa Frank notebook. So I've been doing it for a long time, but (laughs) yeah, I wasn't taking it seriously um, until a college where I majored in English literature and psychology and uh, minored in creative writing. So I've always loved books and stories and I find that horror is so unique because it gets to that primal emotion, like fear is our most basic emotion. And I think think that that we when we study what scares us we don't only just like learn about ourselves as a person like oh this thing creeps me out and this thing doesn't but just as a society or that particular time when you start to go back into the past like what freaked out people as a whole back then or what freaks us out right now and I just think that's always been so interesting yeah Aaron I think calls it a pressure valve horror just being a pressure valve for a lot of the fears and anxieties of our everyday life being released Mm -hmm. and horror helps kind of move that along I know this is a really basic question but what are some of your favorite horror movies or stories in general um it's just always fascinating to hear the stuff that people clicked with um the first i guess a real horror movie i saw was psycho at a halloween party my mom put it on for me and my friends i I had mentioned this on a different podcast and when she listened to it she's like i was such a horrible mother and i'm like no this was awesome so i yes i really clicked with the the idea of suspense and um sort of throwing things at the audience that not just scared them but they didn't expect like having the main woman die like within 30-ish minutes of the movie starting. And then from there, I kind of, it seemed like in the early 2000s when I was growing up, there was a lot of the kind of jump scare trash horror. Oh, you are preaching to the choir. Yeah. (laughs) So I didn't really identify with that. And I almost like when I was, I guess, less educated on the idea of like film, I always thought that when they said horror, that's what they meant was just like a ghost face that jumps out at you and like a dumb teenager running through the woods. And as I got older, I realized, you know, there's like more depth to it with things like Silence of the Lambs or American Psycho, where there's scary things happening, but they are more, I guess, intellectually grounded. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And like Aaron and I both like our trash horror, but we also, mm-hmm. it's nice to every once in a while do a classic, a cerebral yeah. film that 
kind of transcends even just the horror genre. But yeah, Psycho, we actually just did relatively recently, and mm-hmm. that was my first time actually ever seeing it. I can't imagine seeing it when I was younger, but I my dad showed me Jaws when I was like five or six, so I don't think like I could I could throw stones at anyone's parents. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on that note, Silence of the Lambs, like this movie is one that I have seen through most of my life. Like, I remember seeing this movie very young with my mother, watching it on VHS, on TV. It was definitely a cable staple throughout the 90s, and it was one of those movies that anytime it was on TV, you put it on and you watch it if you're folding clothes or cooking or whatever. We would always have it on in the background. Mm -hmm. So this is a movie that, despite how lurid it really is and how much problematic material there is in it that is definitely not (laughs) child-appropriate, I saw this movie a lot growing up. It's just a movie that's always been kind of in the back of my head. And we, Derek and I were speaking the other day about like, what are some knee-jerk like top five, top ten kind of movies? And Silence of the Lambs is kind of always on that list for me. As a piece of filmmaking, top to bottom, everything about it's pretty impeccable. You know, there's there's some problematic, you know, story elements now that we look at 30 years later in reflection. But overall, like, the technical craft in the movie is impeccable and it's one of those that really influenced me in kind of my path to film school and wanting to get into that and being obsessed with it my entire Mm -hmm. life so this is definitely one of those for me that I saw too young that definitely made an impact on me in much the same way well cool we are definitely happy to have you on V and we are excited to get into a deeper conversation of this movie real quick uh, let's go ahead and throw out some recommendations that we have for our listeners before we get started. Since this is a new year and we have had two kind of unconventional episodes recently where we didn't necessarily throw anything at listeners. So let's see what we've got in our bags. V, since you are the guest, we'll go ahead and let you start. What have you got for us? Great. Um, So a friend of mine recently turned me on to Lake Mungo, which is, I believe, a 2008 horror movie out of Australia. Um, It is done in the sort of mockumentary style, but not like The Office. It's very serious. It's a fake documentary about the death of a young woman and about whether or not her spirit is haunting her family. And it's done in such a good way that you forget that it's fake. You kind of think you're watching a real documentary and it's just very, it's both creepy and sad and just very well done all at the same time. And, and it's great to also watch something that isn't just US based as a lot of stuff that I yeah. I watch. So I say, check that out. It's on streaming, various services um, have it. So this movie a couple months ago had come across my radar as I was looking stuff up. Um, it was a random night and I I was bored so I just kind of went through a horror movie deep dive looking for stuff to add to our list and this is one that kind of came across my radar in that time and I will say just from your description of it and what I remember looking into it a couple months ago I really do want to cover this one I am not always the biggest fan of kind of mockumentary style movies but when they're done right I really really fucking enjoy them and this one looks solid top notch so Aaron we got to do this one in the near future that's what i was about to kind of chime in around as well just to back up what v said as far as faux documentary style stuff goes that can be done very effectively or you roll your eyes the entire time case in point kind of in prep for this episode 
I watched some stuff that was not directly related, but stuff that maybe kind of owes a lot to Silence of the Lambs. One movie that I watched that I haven't seen in years, that I really didn't like years ago, that I kind of wanted to revisit just to like give it another try, turns out I still don't like it, is the Poughkeepsie Tapes. It is also kind of a fake true crime documentary about this serial killer who left you know 1200 VHS tapes of all these women that he had abducted and tortured and murdered in his basement it's definitely trashy it's definitely way more explicit and exploitative than you want in any movie like this I mean it's it's kind of the definition of torture porn in the worst way but it is one where the documentary and air quotes part of it is so poorly done (laughs) it's way too clean and edgy the fake newscasting reports are the worst iMovie backgrounds with an actor clearly acting all of the like fake FBI profile people and the family members are just the worst community theater actors Lake Mungo is so effective because it genuinely does feel like you're watching some shit right off of like Discovery Channel when Discovery Channel used to be good the people in the movie have that weird deadpan awkwardness to their line deliveries like real people giving interviews would have and it's very self-aware of how it's shooting things it's not using edgy camera angles the way that it's edited is very reminiscent of those kinds of shows and documentaries so like the effect of the faux documentary in Lake Mungo works so well and there are some genuinely creepy creepy moments in it for something that does start out fairly mundane so that's definitely one that i slept on for a while and finally caught up with a couple of years ago and it's solid v do you have any other recommendations before we move on uh no that that's pretty much the most recent one that i've seen that's sort of i guess stuck out as something really unique awesome well derek uh what have you got for us sir so as i mentioned probably a couple episodes ago i have been making my way through my comics collection i've been kind of separating stuff to sell and get rid of and kind of determining what I want to hold on to. And in doing so, I have kind of rediscovered some series I had read a year or two ago or a couple of years ago kind of forgot about maybe or put in the back of my mind and I'm now just remembering how much I enjoyed them and one of those series is called Black Magic Yeah, and magic is spelled M-A-G-I-C-K Black Magic is written by our boy Greg Rucka. As I probably said in past episodes, Greg Rucka is one of my favorite comic book writers but more recently he sometimes write as if he is purposely writing his comic to be adapted as a TV show or a movie Black Magic takes the best aspects of his kind of serial writing style, kind of almost like TV show-esque mystery writing style, without it feeling like it's just an adaptation. Like, And I don't know if it's because of the art style as well, because the art style is mostly in black and white, but every so often there are certain things that are punctuated in color. But the synopsis of this it takes the idea of supernatural horror and true crime and mashes them together. So Black Magic follows a character named Rowan. Black, who is a detective for the Portsmouth PD. She is a witch as well. And it sounds like she's been a witch or at least reincarnated as a witch. This isn't really giving away anything, but for years, like decades, uh, hundreds of years, maybe. She is struggling to keep her life separated because there's a case that happens 
that crosses over into the world of magic. I know the the synopsis sounds like very predictable, but just the way Greg Rucka handles it and writes it is so well done. And really, while the series does focus on Rowan Black, it's honestly kind of about her and her partner and them navigating life together as these two detectives and really good friends, actually. Um, Her partner is this guy who is married and expecting his first child, and he kind of unwillingly gets wrapped up in into this world of magic that Rowan is in and Rowan's desperately trying to keep it separate and out of his life because she doesn't want it to hurt him and his family and his wife and his newborn and it just goes from there and it goes insane and I I like a lot of the way they portray magic in this they don't hide anything it's not so esoteric that it's hard to follow it doesn't quite handle magic like in the same ways as Twin Peaks or even uh, the Black Monday Murders another horror comic that Aaron and I both like Aaron sounds like you've read this one yeah yeah black magic is solid like you said the character relationship stuff is very well observed and well written i am definitely a stickler for artwork if i don't quite click with the art i have a hard time getting through a book and the art and that is fantastic yeah it's a solid series and i'm glad that it's back now because it definitely had a weird hiatus for a little while yeah and the artist is nicola scott look up her artwork especially on black magic it is so good Hell yeah. All right. Well, um, I've got four quick recommendations um, of stuff that I've seen and read recently. So as far as comics go, since we're still right there, I found a list just browsing the web that I'm sure it's like an old outdated list at this point, And I posted it on our Twitter. So if you dig around there, you'll find where I posted it. But it was the 100 best horror comics. So I literally just dug through and skimmed that entire list and made a huge list for myself of stuff to go catch back up with. The first series that I dug into and read front to back, because as of right now, it's only 12 issues. It's uh, two arcs. was a series called Redlands. It's about a group of three witches who essentially, like, it starts off in media res with the police station under siege in the 70s in this shithole Florida, just Everglades kind of town. Yeah, it's like a Florida man town and and these witches come into town and raise hell. It's great. Basically, yeah. But these women, like, take over the police station. They kind of cut the head off the snake as far as powers that be in this town. And they take over this town and it kind of becomes this weird isolated pocket where they kind of run the town, they run the police, you know, everybody that was under the thumb of the white southern police group, essentially, they are now kind of the people running this town and it's got that kind of weird magic isolation where other people in Florida like don't seem to know about this town or where they're from or have ever heard of them, but it's wild and a lot of the regular town folk ended up kind of changed by these women taking over so one of the guys like literally is a were alligator there's another guy who like is kind of a living ghost now but it's basically about these three women dealing with their oppressors and dealing with a series of murders of women trying to bring these people to justice the artwork in it's fantastic it's very sketchy I guess is the best way to 
to put it, but the characters are very well observed, lots of distinct personality to them, very frank in the subject matter, but it's definitely one that I'm I'm hoping continues. It seems like they're on a kind of a hiatus as well right now after the first two story arcs, but they definitely seem to have a plan for the rest of that series, so that is definitely worth checking out. If you're wondering what kind of energy this comic brings, it brings a lot of the same energy that the end of The Witch does, yeah. of just kind of that idea of transcending your oppressors and turning it on its head. I like that it doesn't shy away from both the good and bad aspects of these witches, because the town is a much better place and the police were extremely corrupt, almost kind of like Rambo yeah. in a weird way, of just like they were like basically the Rambo sheriff's office, but then these witches take over and they really do turn the town into a better place, but at the same time, like as the cost of their power, they... They're complicated, yeah. they're flawed, there are problems with how things are being run. They still require like sacrifices and they abduct like yeah. virgin girls for the sacrifices, so it, it's take and give. One of my favorite scenes in that entire thing though is like the uh, one of the witches having a relationship with that were alligator cryptid guy, because yeah. I was just like, that guy is a Rougarou, <laughs> like, like a more <laughs> reptile version of a Rougarou. Yeah. Three movie suggestions real quick. One is Hunter Hunter. That is a movie that has just recently hit VOD. It is a first-time director. I'm looking up the name right now. Basically, it is about this family who kind of lives off the grid through nature. They're not crazy prepper kind of people necessarily, but they definitely like live on their own. There is a wolf that is coming and killing all of their game, so they have to kill this wolf and then turns out oops stumbled on a patch of dead bodies left by a serial killer and things go from there and that's all i'll really say movie was directed by sean linden cast is kind of wild it has devin sawa in it haven't seen him since early 2000s it also has nick stahl in it and he's kind of getting back into things after being out of acting for a few years camille sullivan as well the daughter in the movie summer h howell maybe it was just seeing her with pigtails grungy carrying a backpack and a rifle but if hbo does end up making this the last of a show she's pretty much a dead ringer for the main girl in that video game so that movie is solid and it's got a fucking hell of an intense ending oh man she would make a great ellie you're right movie on shutter that was a lot of fun is mortuary collection it is an anthology where clancy brown is this gross creepy mortician and there's a teenage girl who stumbles in because he has a help wanted sign out front and it's essentially him just kind of going through these stories of people who have died and passed through his mortuary very stylish the camera work in it's very polished it has kind of a 1950s 60s feel to the stories very fun very easy comics everybody is terrible but they kind of get what's coming to them by the end of their stories super fun that one was definitely way better than i was expecting so uh definitely check it out and then the last thing i'll mention is psycho gore man which i saw the preview for that and i was definitely excited because that looked right up my alley yeah you've been talking about this movie for a while yeah it's from the team who did the editor and the void this is directed by steven kostansky so it definitely has that very tongue-in-cheek showing all of its references on its sleeve kind of thing. If you like 90s monster movie, the Giver, people in monster suits, 
suits, rock music, laser blasts kind of bullshit. This is definitely the movie for you. Um, it's about these two siblings that find this gem in their backyard that they dig up that awakens Psycho Gore Man, who is the, like, supreme evil in the universe. The little girl controls him with the gem, so he kind of becomes their, like, best friend pet. So it's great, because it's just these two smart-ass kids going around getting into hijinks with this giant monster man doing their bidding. And, of course, other monsters come to, like, take him out. So, yeah, very fun, good, like, family story at the middle of it. Ridiculous, over-the-top bullshit. And my favorite, it gives us a twofer where it ends with not only a hair metal song over the credits, but also a self-aware about-the-movie rap song over the credits. Yes! Which is great. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, definitely worth checking out. Like a shark fin. Yes. So, yeah, definitely worth checking out. That one was a lot of fun. So, keep an eye out for it. One last thing before we get into the the movie, and I guess this is technically another last-minute recommendation, but something I wanted to say, especially because Holden himself has been really cool to us, uh, shouting out our podcast on Wizard and the Bruiser. You and I like a lot of the content in general that comes from the last podcast network. You and I both listen to this band, The Cowmen. Holden McNeely is in it. Marcus Parks, part of last podcast. He used to be in it. I think he was one of the founders of the band. They announced that they are going on an indefinite hiatus. Um, This isn't like a full breakup, but Carly moved to Kansas. Holden is about to move out to LA. Marcus left the band a couple years ago to focus on last podcast. And so just with so many people moving to different parts of the country and everything else, they are going to go on an indefinite hiatus. Devin, Andrew, and Doug are going to continue to make music together, but probably just under a different name. For those of you who don't know, the Cowmen are a dark alt-country, tongue-in-cheek band, kind of cowpunk-esque. A lot of their music has references to like satanic, esoteric magic and murder and stuff like that. But the music is actually really good, really fun. I know that you can still purchase their music. I know their music's on Apple Music as well, so please go support them. I think they are going to try and print their last few EPs on vinyl as one more like farewell goodbye thing. So please go support the Cowmen, give them a few bucks, get some really cool, groovy, dark country tunes. It was a pleasure, guys. See y'all down the trail. Hope you make music sometime in the future again. But life happens, COVID happened, y'all are all moving. We understand. So thank you for what you did give us. And the Cowmen, I think like four or five of their songs are on our Spotify playlist for spooky tunes. So I just wanted to say one more thing. Cool, cool. Well, let's go ahead and get to the big show. So as we have mentioned multiple times, this week we are going to be covering the 1991 Jonathan Demme elevated horror dark thriller. You can put a million labels on what this Psych- movie is. It's a psychological masterpiece horror movie. It's, there you it's go. everything, yeah. yeah. So we will be discussing Silence of the Lambs. You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. 
with the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arms. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Awesome. So right off the bat, V, I think it's pretty obvious why you picked this movie. But again, like I mentioned earlier, you came out the gate swinging with a big one. Definitely appreciate that. But yeah, tell us why Silence of the Lambs, what specifically about this story has captivated you and influenced your work? Well, I like that Clarice is a female investigator but her her femininity is not the main focus even though as we'll surely discuss there's clearly like a lot of guys hitting on her throughout this entire thing but she wants to just do a good job at what you know her her life's mission is which is to defend innocent people against horrible monsters out there and it doesn't sort of come swinging at this like rah rah look what women can do we're as good as men it just has a woman who wants to do you know what her life's calling is without you know being too too preachy and it, she feels like a fully fledged person that you could run into in real life and that's the sort of story i want to as a writer try to tell of you know female leads who are fully rounded real people yeah and one of the things i've noticed too especially in like horror video games even um anytime there's like a female protagonist for a lot of them like I, i've read over the years like a lot of developers point to clarice as either they want to pay direct homage or it's an inspiration for the characters like for instance like with jill valentine and the resident evil series but they still seem to kind of miss the things that make clarice a great protagonist and like one of the things that makes this movie so classic is clarice herself she's one of the best protagonists all around in any story i think yeah whether it's movie, book, etc. And then also too, of course, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter and even Ted Levine's Buffalo Bill, although it is problematic in nature, just the performances and the way they characterize them are timeless. But with Clarice herself, I think like one of the things that a lot of people miss when they're writing these kind of female investigators or people in those kind of uh, professions is that all around flawed, but like it makes sense. They seem like real people. Like Clarice has a heavy accent and she's underestimated all the time because she's a woman, but also her accent as well. Even Hannibal Lecter himself seems to underestimate her at first with her accent. She's not perfect either, though, because like the, the whole scene where she finally catches up with Buffalo Bill and they're kind of stalking each other in the darkness, like she's tripping over stuff. She's on high alert. There's fear, just like any other person, like any other character would be like in that way. But she still uses her smarts and uses her uh, natural abilities to overcome those odds but it all feels believable and even there's even a little bit of luck involved and you just don't find that a lot with other protagonists you always hear the, and i hate this insult especially because it seems to get lobbed more at female characters than male characters but of the mary sue and i think clarice is a perfect example of the antithesis the exact opposite of that 
yeah, I, I don't know what else there is to say about Clarice. I mean, she's just a perfect character in my mind for a protagonist. Yeah, I have always loved this character. You know, one of my other all-time favorite movie characters is Marge Gunderson from Fargo, and it's very much the same vibe. I love Clarice for a lot of the same reasons. She is vulnerable. She is scared. She is over her head. But at the same time, she is confident in what she knows. She is confident in her abilities. Starting the movie off with that training montage and seeing her like beaten ass at that entire physical ropes course thing on the FBI training campus. That scene, cutting immediately to her like at the gun range, cutting to her like in the simulation, the scenes of her studying, you know, it all just is there to back up that she knows what the fuck she's doing. You know, even if she does feel unsure of herself and she's in over her head, like she's got it you know at the end of the day well and she's still learning she's always learning and observing because like even during the those montages she's like beaten ass on that on that run trail but then later on during the simulation she forgets to check her corner and she kind of like they have to repeat the simulation because she forgot to check her corner and she quote unquote died during the simulation and you just don't see that very often with protagonists everybody in these kind of movies when they're this kind of protagonist they're just good yeah they just have their shit this is a dumb example but Cobra with Stallone that came out maybe just four or five years before this movie he is the super cop coming in to take out a serial killer but he is cool he dresses cool he's got one-liners he has a cool car (laughs) everything he does is perfect right but there's nothing in the movie to back that up it's just the like macho badass dude kind of thing i can't believe you fucking equated cobra to the silence of the Well, i'm saying like that's the opposite i know know, as far as like i have to give you shit you know that's like a terrible example that i can think of like immediately that's just so over the top but this movie like every step of the way is showing you she is putting in the work she is earning like everything that she has and she is coming out the best at the end of the day like she is getting the work done she solves everything with her friend like they're the ones that figure out this whole thing they're the ones that bust this open not all the other dudes at the FBI not Jack Crawford not the SWAT team the two girls in air quotes are the ones that solve this whole thing but you see them put in that work and you see them earn that and Jodie Foster specific. I mean, she won an Oscar for this. Very well deserved. What I enjoy about her performance in this too, because looking at casting, casting for this movie is kind of wild as far as what ifs go. Jodie Foster actively pursued this role. She actively pursued getting this movie made. She actually sought to get the rights to this book. I didn't know that. And found out that she had actually been beaten to the punch by Gene Hackman? Right? Like, Gene Hackman split the rights with Orion. He wanted to develop this. He wanted to direct this. He wanted to star as Jack Crawford. What a weird, like, what if, right? And Jodie Foster was actively pursuing it. Hackman stepped away because he kind of said, like, okay, I was just in um, Mississippi Burning. Like, that's a rough movie. I don't want to do something that dark again. So he completely walked from the project. 
Foster continued to pursue it. Jonathan Demi came on. Demi wanted to work with Michelle Pfeiffer because they had just worked on Married to the Mob. I think she would have been interesting as Clarice, certainly. I don't think that's a bad choice at all, especially for where Michelle Pfeiffer was in her career at that point. But she didn't want to do it because the material was dark. And Orion pursued her. And then eventually, I think from what I read, she was like, cool, I'll do it for $2 million. And they were like, haha, cool, bye. <laughs> Jodie Foster said, cool, I would like to do this. Jonathan Demme said, uh, what about Meg Ryan? And what about Laura Dern? And the studio, you know, just kind of kept rolling through all these other big stars at the time. But Foster eventually pushed through. And she is absolutely the perfect choice for this role because of all the things that we've talked about this character so far, one thing about this character that is so part of what makes her so good and so special in this movie, and it's something that very few actresses can bring in the same way that Jodie Foster brings to this role. There is such a sense of... I am not going to put up with your bullshit yeah. that you get from Jodie Foster. Yeah. You know, she has that, I have been in the industry since I was a child. I have dealt with bullshit my entire career. I've dealt with bullshit people my entire career. I've been talked down to my entire career. Done. I'm over it. I can deal with this. I've dealt with a thousand other people just like you. You know, and that characteristic to her is so good. It's something that Jodie Foster brings to that character in a way that I think you would find in very, very few other people. Well, in this movie, she knows who Clarice is. She's so confident in this character. It's like she could write a novel of like, this is what her childhood was like. This is exactly the things that happened during her childhood, not just the death of her father, but other stuff. That whole scene where her and Hannibal have the conversation about the lambs is one of the best acted scenes I think we've covered in any movies we've covered so far. It is terrifying, but you can't take your eyes away. You can't close your ears. You have to hear it. And that's just the way it was filmed and the way that Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster played that. And it really is mostly dialogue, but just, oh my God, that scene is one of the most terrifying scenes. And it's just a story, really. It's just a story about someone's childhood. And it's one of those things that makes it so terrifying to me is it's one of those mundane things that we all of us probably have some mundane or like childhood story that on the surface just seems like typical everyday business as usual, but it affected us at the right time during the right stage of our lives. And it's very disturbing. For me, it'd be probably be something in nursing. Mm -hmm. But V, to your point, it's also the complete and absolute pinpoint to her motivation as a character. She wants to silence the lambs. Like, that is kind of ultimately what her goal is. And it's not to be the most badass. It's not to, like, make a name for herself. It's not to, like, you also mentioned a second ago, like, prove anything to, like, the boys, necessarily. She specifically is in it because she wants to bring justice, and she wants to find closure for victims, and she wants to, like, do what she can to save that one lamb. Like, even if everything falls around her, you know, if she can just save that one person, which the Catherine Martin character is that lamb at the end of the day, it's all worth it to her. And that's something special, certainly. As far as true crime stuff, just to wrap back around to that, it's weird because this movie is maybe the first to really explore that serial killer phenomenon that you know, especially like Western and American specifically audiences have been so obsessed with for decades. This is maybe the 
first movie that was very mainstream that explored the idea of serial killers in a way that was not just exploitative. You know, like so many horror movies before this were just kill, kill, stab, stab. There's a murderer on the loose killing teenagers or killing women. And it was just very grindhousey and exploitative. And they certainly didn't have the procedural element that Silence of the Lambs has. Maybe the closest movies, I guess, that had done this before, maybe Freakin's Cruising, Sea of Love, Freeway, and Manhunter, which that's technically the first story in this whole Hannibal Lecter series. But this is kind of the first to, like, truly coalesce into, like, the framework for the modern-day serial killer procedural horror thriller, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's kind of like this movie, and then every seven to ten years you have kind of another big staple. I would say, you know, next would be Seven, and then Zodiac, and now it's pretty much just TV. It's Dexter, it's The Killing, it's The Fall, The Following. Mindhunter. True Detective, yeah, Killing Eve. And then, like we mentioned, just a plethora of true crime podcasts and novels and everything else. You know, so that's kind of why this movie is still important, is it's the foundation for all of that modern look and feel and tone. And it, it definitely influenced everything that came afterward, but the procedural angle is something that's always intriguing. And it's part of the reason why the other Harris books just aren't as good, in my opinion at least. Like, Hannibal loses a lot of that procedural focus that Manhunter, or sorry, Manhunter the movie, is it's there too, but like Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs. And V, listening to your show, Dead Letters, that's one thing I kind of enjoyed there was just how do you get from point A to point B? How do you figure out how all this stuff links up? Like, that stuff is what's also fascinating, is just seeing people who are good at what they do make those connections. What what kind of things specifically did you do in terms of research for your show, for your writing, to kind of bring some of that procedural element? And how do you work at crafting a lot of that story aspect for your work? Um, so I like to sort of collect random little facts that at first they don't seem important at all. And then they, I either, as I'm working on something, they get added into the, the project, like what's some random like esoteric thing that the protagonist should learn or maybe already knows from their field of interest that no one else knows. And I think Clarice kind of does this a little bit with her psychological profiling of Buffalo Bill. But yeah, just like any sort of little bits of information that could either solve a case or figure out a mystery or just sort of point the protagonist in in the right direction. Um, actually, the show The Dead Letters, I didn't know up until like a few years ago that a dead letter is a letter that is sent that cannot be given to the, the recipient and cannot be returned to the sender. So it's kind of like this okay. thing that gets lost in the mail. Like it's forever yeah. just gone. And I kind of felt that that was so haunting. And it sort of from there spun off a, a show that I wrote just with the idea of this letter that you can't figure out who it's sent and you can't give it back. And the post office doesn't really even have a record of it. Yes, yeah, so like little things that may not seem important. And there's also like little things in Silence of the Lambs that Harris took from real serial killers, um, Ed Gein and Ted Bundy, which I'm sure you guys 
both know that the whole like cast in an arm i need help moving a furniture yeah. i'm lost whatever is a bundy ploy that uh, he used on several victims and the wanting to wear a person's skin is a ed gein thing so it's like those little facts which i don't think those things were really common knowledge um they still may not be but they weren't really as i guess sensational until i think this movie came out because it took things that were real and sort of fictionalized them and, and sort of brought them into the like cultural zeitgeist. The first movie we ever covered on this show was The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and there was heavy influence from Ed Gein in making that movie, but I don't think even that movie really brought it to light in the same way that Silence of the Lambs did. It focuses on it in a different way, too. Yeah. To V's point as well about Bundy, a lot of the relationship that Clarice and the rest of the FBI, I guess, and Jack Crawford, like, have with Hannibal Lecter in that we need to, like, go see the monster. We need to go talk to the monster about the other monster so that we can figure out how to catch him. That angle is also influenced by Bundy because he definitely did the same exact thing once he was captured. The FBI would come to him and kind of do a lot of the same things, stroke his ego and get him talking and then kind of throw little bits and pieces of information out about other serial killers and say, hey, what do you think about this? What is your take on this? What do you see in these small details? Like V was saying, just these innocuous things that maybe don't mean anything to someone else, but how do you look at this through your eyes? What does that look like? And I mean, that's what they did in terms of catching the Green River Killer, ultimately. They were going to him for advice on that so those connections are definitely there and the way that they kind of utilize it in this movie as well is interesting because as much as Jack Crawford is kind of this mentor figure Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter is certainly kind of positioned in the same way just on the opposite end of the spectrum for Clarice and it creates a very interesting push-pull between them it goes in a lot of interesting directions too but I like that it it doesn't definitively fall in one end of the spectrum for them, which again, one of the things I dislike about some of Harris's later stuff is he makes their relationship explicitly a romantic one. Yeah. And that's just such a weird direction, in my opinion. Uh, so after watching this, I read the um, plot synopsis for the books and wanted to get the whole picture of like what happens to these characters after the Silence of the Lambs. And I was disappointed. Because that whole idea of Clarice and Hannibal like disappearing together and having like a romantic sexual relationship just made zero sense in my mind after watching this movie and watching like Jodie Foster's portrayal of Clarice. And maybe, I don't know, uh, have V, have you ever read these books? I haven't read them, but I did get curious about, I believe like Hannibal came out sometime when I was in high school, which was like between 06 and 2010. Because I remember a bunch of like guys at school talking about like how sick it was. And I like just remember looking up all the different like Hannibal stories because I, I don't know how many books there are, but there are multiple. And I remember being really disappointed because yeah. not only is there the romantic re relationship, which I kind of felt was like almost a cheap shot. It's like, oh, two, I guess, I suppose, heterosexual uh, men and women are together in a room. They have to be in love. And yeah. that was lame. I also don't like that they made him into almost a supernatural being that like he has red eyes and has like night vision. And just like, I, I liked him as a, just like a really scary guy. That's really smart, not a super villain. He also works best when he is 
self-contained. Yeah. Him off the leash, running around Europe, murdering people, and just going full canned ham, it's, it's just not as fun for a variety of reasons. Like, him being kind of that lion in the cage and just stalking and circling, and you know that, like, that glass is the only thing separating you from a complete and utter monster is way more terrifying than just knowing there is a monster out there in some way. So putting those limitations on him as a character makes him so much scarier. And it's also one of those things where your mind has to do so much of the work for you instead of you seeing explicitly him in action. You're just hearing in these dark whispers about the things he's done. He's still a major threat even behind glass. Like he can still psychologically break you down. Yeah, he can still manipulate you. He can still fuck with you. Absolutely. Yeah, and I agree with you, V, when I read the synopses, because I I haven't read any of the books. I've really only seen this movie, seen maybe parts of Red Dragon, and that's about it. I haven't even watched Hannibal, the movie, not the TV series. I've heard the TV series is good. Aaron, you've actually spoken highly. I'll go to bat for the TV series. It's very different. It's very camp. It's very wild. It's very dark. It's darker than these movies. I will go to, to bat for the series, but it is a completely different thing. You have to like look at it in kind of its own weird little vacuum unrelated to the novels unrelated to this movie and the other movies but yeah just hearing how Clarice's relationship with Hannibal develops in the novels it was a bummer it was such a bummer because I'm guessing that Clarice in the Silence of the Lambs is she in the novel is in Manhunter is she no so she's not in it at all Red Dragon is the first story in the series that was adapted by Michael Mann prior to Silence of the Lambs. Right. Um, it was a Dino De Laurentiis movie. Totally different cast. Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter. It's a very different take on Hannibal Lecter. So it's its own story. It's kind of the same thing where Will Graham is going to Hannibal Lecter in prison already to consult with him about a new serial killer. And then Silence of the Lambs is kind of the same formula, just new central character that you're following, new dynamics, but same thing essentially. But I'm guessing Clarice in the novel, The Silence of the Lambs, is a fairly strong character. Either that or Jody just really ran with it. The movie is a very good adaptation of the novel, I'll say. I have read all the novels. It's been years since I've read them, but the movie is a pretty faithful adaptation. There are some elements kind of sort of missing, like Clarice and Jack Crawford kind of have a little bit of an affair going on in the book, and that plot line is dropped altogether for the movie. I'm glad it was. Hannibal uses that line to fuck with her a little bit, you know, suggesting that there's something there, but I'm glad that the movie, like, never actually goes into that territory. Yeah, it's a very good adaptation, and I think those first two novels of Harris are very solid. I really enjoy Red Dragon a lot. I am definitely one of those weird people that I enjoy Manhunter more than I enjoy actual Red Dragon that was made years after this and even after Hannibal, where Anthony Hopkins is much older and supposed to be playing much younger. Edward Norton is the Will Graham character in that. Ray Fiennes is the Tooth Fairy character and he's just so over-the-top ridiculous. Brett Ratner directed it and obviously he's a bag of dicks. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. And that movie is just, it's very, like, by the numbers, just boring. Manhunter is very different tonally. It's very, like, Michael Mann, 80s, flashy. It's very, very different. So it's also, like, you can look at it in a vacuum. But everything about Silence of the Lambs as a film is just so singular. And one thing that you and I were talking about before we started recording, so many horror movies in general that we cover are done by people, at least for the most part. Horror seems to be where you can break into the industry. It's always a fairly safe genre to jump into. You can bring whatever you want to it flavor-wise. It can be done on any budget level, and it's always going to sell, right? So it's, it's how a lot of writers and directors kind of initially try to break into the industry. So a lot of the work that we've covered on our show has been people who are first time, second time, early in their careers kind of breaking in. This movie is made by people who were like way deep into their careers in terms of their like talent and their abilities and their experience had already proven themselves. I mean, Jonathan Demme had 12, 14 movies already under his belt. Granted, a lot of them were like direct video and kind of made for TV and grindhousey stuff because he came up through Corman. But I mean, he had already had the Talking Heads concert movie, Stop Making Sense, which is one of the all-time greatest concert movies. He had Something Wild, which is fantastic. He had already had some solid hits under his belt. Tak Fujimoto was the director of photography for this, and he is fucking amazing. This is like one of Colleen Atwood's earlier movies, and she's won four Oscars for costuming and has eight more nominations. Howard Shore does the music for this, you know, and he's done like all of Cronenberg stuff. So this was from a back-end technical standpoint, a movie that was made by people who were top talent and already had a lot of stuff under their belts. So the filmmaking side of this is pretty impeccable. So it's kind of a miracle when like something like this that starts off as very much an airport novel thriller has such success. And it's rare that that happens anymore. You know, the last few movies that were kind of of the same vein have not really landed in quite the same way that this movie did. Right. And certainly not to the same success. I mean, this movie won Best Picture and Director and Actress and Actor and Adapted Screenplay when it came out. Out, made a shit ton of money. I mean, this movie, like, for all intents and purposes, was a huge, massive, nobody quite expected it hit that the studio took a chance on. But it, they took a chance with people who were all, like, again, already well-established and yeah. top of their class already. So the book was not well-known. It was really this movie that kind of put no, it No, it was that. just new. You know, the book came out in 88, and they were literally filming this movie the next yeah. year. I heard you call it a airport thriller, basically. So I was like, oh, that's, that's so strange if it wasn't like oh i mean i'm sure it was well received but like not like universally praised and and then this movie like comes out and nukes from orbit with how good it is well it was you know manhunter come out it wasn't successful i mean it was definitely a flop so orion got the rights to silence of the lambs dino de Laurentiis still had the character rights to hannibal lecter but because manhunter was such a flop he was just like fuck it have the rights for free have fun making a hannibal lecter movie it didn't work for me and then they turn around and make 
this like massive hit, which is part of the like weird messy rights issues with this entire series and why there's like this TV show that takes weird leaps and has different character arcs and they're trying to do this Clarice TV show, which I think is still yeah. happening it's like the yeah. fourth or fifth time that like they're trying CBS. to get around to making that happen in fact it's supposed to premiere february 11th whoa shit okay yeah it might have even premiered like already when this episode drops well i didn't realize that they had even actually finally gotten that off the ground for like the eighth time trying it's an interesting premise i think i remember reading it set in 93 the year after when sounds of the lambs happened and continues to go through like untold stories of clarice i hope it's good but either way i hope they just avoid the whole hannibal clarice relationship thing that happens in the novels before we continue talking about more production or other aspects v something i wanted to ask you how susceptible to horror movies are you what do you find scary is this the type of horror that really clicks with you and gets under your skin is that part of the reason why you chose this it doesn't really freak me out too much um it's still like very intense and i try to like not put myself in Catherine's position because i think that's probably the most terrifying part is seeing her in the well and trying to like claw her way out and seeing that there was like bloody handprints that someone did not make it out before you so i think if you are able to kind of not you know envision yourself in buffalo bill's house um i i have a pretty easy time with it i randomly when it comes to horror in the supernatural female ghosts freak me out like really like the ring style like very haggard and scary like yes. unkempt female ghosts it could be a man but it doesn't scare me the same way. I don't know why, but female ghosts that look, I, I guess, like the sort of stereotypical, I forget the name for it in Japanese, but that sort of like little girl ghost or like teenage girl ghost, that is the most terrifying for me. And I generally, I will watch them, but I have to take like big breaks. I cannot like have a binge of that sort of freaky women ghost marathon. I, I know they fall under the umbrella term. I think they fall under the umbrella term of yokai, but I don't know their exact names. I know there's an, another name for them because I know exactly what you're talking about. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Finally, someone else on the show who has the same fears I do. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because for the millionth time, Supernatural is what freaks me the fuck out that's what scares me i don't know why i don't know why that is like because usually like this kind of stuff doesn't freak me out very much um realistic like actual people doesn't freak me out i guess because there's like an idea of control and an idea of that i can still fight back and they're just a person like me i don't know what it is but something else that you brought up that i think is interesting is the idea of a female ghost versus a male ghost and i actually agree with you i think when i picture ghost in my head a terrifying ghost in my head it's always a woman it's always a female maybe a little girl but usually a woman like that's part of the reason why i won't watch the haunting of hill house which i know aaron is wanting me to watch because you're gonna have a bad time with that yeah the broken neck lady looks so fucking terrifying to me and a weird fear i have is just suddenly hearing a woman screaming a woman's scream just fucking makes my hair stand on end so the idea of like a banshee that kind of female ghost is always fucking freaky i know that you had mentioned earlier in the episode that you kind of also rolled your eyes at the heavy jump scare era of like the early 2000s and like I, I joke about it with Aaron all the time that that I call it like the dirt trash horror era <laughs> because you had all these like pretty but trying to be grindhouse looking movies and remakes of movies that weren't that great I mean I love the ring 
the American version of the ring. And I like Ringu as well, but I love the American version of the ring. But I will say that it opened the door for a lot of trash mm-hmm. because then everyone was trying to do a remake and none of them were as good. But yeah, that kind of style of ghost is also haunting to me. But part of the reason why I wanted to ask what scares you and all that is because I was going to kind of segue into the newbies guide, if you will, of like what to expect with the Silence of the Lambs. And I will say that if you want to test yourself and you don't have to worry about jump scares, this is the perfect movie because this movie is terrifying and has, in my opinion, zero jump scares. It is so cerebral, so so well paced, so psychological and dark and all the scenes with Buffalo Bill and, and seeing his house and how he operates with victims and Catherine and what she's going through. All that is just a terrifying slow burn watch. Not, not even slow burn. This movie doesn't really waste any time, but it is terrifying nonetheless. I would recommend it even for horror uh, newbies because A, it's just a movie you should see if you are interested in cinema in any way, shape, or form. But B, if you're jump scare susceptible, this is a perfect movie to watch because there are no jump scares and it's still terrifying. Well, it's not a horror movie, Derek. It's a dark thriller, drama, psychological, whatever hey, words that you Wikipedia. can think of that aren't explicitly horror. Yeah, that's what we want to call it if we want to like elevate it and be professional and classy about it it's a fucking horror movie (laughs) well jokes on everybody yeah wikipedia has it written as an american psychological horror movie so boom it's a horror movie but yes i found this movie is one that it's a sit with you movie it's a movie that i've been thinking about because to also go on another trope of our show i know i have seen most of this movie this might have been my first sit down start to finish watch i feel like i before i'd watched this movie i'd seen it before it's like oh yeah the sound slams I've totally seen that before, but I think I might have just caught bits and pieces of every part throughout this movie, but never in one sitting did I actually sit down and watch this. Um, So V, thank you again for choosing this because yet again, our show forces me to watch like a movie I should have seen years ago. (laughs) One thing I do enjoy, again, kind of going back to like the procedural angle of this and kind of the investigative angle. And and I've mentioned this before, but like one thing I, I love about movies is anytime that you can see like people who are just good at their jobs and in this movie you definitely have both the detectives and the killer who are like you know in air quotes i guess good at their jobs you see their process you see how they get from point a to point b you see the weird steps they have to go to to get what they need and it's interesting too like that seems to be kind of a weird fascination in pop culture in general i mean look at the rise of all the job in air quote related tv shows and there's cooking shows and there's fashion shows and just you're watching shows where people who are good at their job can be good at what they do and you know there's tension around their successes and their failures and you want to share in their successes and also kind of use their failures as like a way to feel better about your own failures and that's one of the most rewarding things about this movie is just watching Clarice put the pieces together point A to point B and find these details like we're talking about that are you know, mundane that get overlooked. One criticism of the movie, and this is certainly a 
problem in pop culture that is being addressed in interesting ways. And, you know, V, this is certainly something that you can speak to more than me, obviously, since you're doing the work. But the kind of fascination with, like, the dead girl trope is something that has been around since the beginning of movies. I mean, it's been around in pop culture in general and writing and everything forever. You know, as much as, like, Derek and I love Twin Peaks, that entire show is still centered around the dead girl trope. But one thing that this movie gets criticism for that I don't necessarily feel that much of, per se, is the whole, like, the movie pays attention to Clarice and to these other characters, but then, like, doesn't pay attention to the victims, and it doesn't humanize the victims. But we definitely see Catherine Martin in this movie. You know so much about her as a character just from the things that you're shown in the movie, from how she's dressed to the moment of her singing Tom Petty in her car. Like, you know so much about that character, and you feel so much about her, and definitely the fact that, like, she's not willing to, like, go down without a fight. And some of the details that Clarice discovers about these other women who were murdered too just learning about their interpersonal lives and that's a lot of where she cracks things open is she's willing to look at the victims not just as this dead body this puzzle to solve but she looks at them as people who had lives and had inner desires and aspirations you know going to Frederica Bimmel's house and looking at her diary and just her clothing and like just stuff in her room and finding all these little details about who she was what she wanted and the fact that this girl just wanted to get out of this town and she wanted to be in a relationship and all this other stuff that like led to the ultimate figuring out who was committing all of this you know I think that's one of the best aspects of this movie is that it doesn't just treat the victims as dead bodies like Mm -hmm. it does have to look at them as people and that's like what Clarice's strength is and that's what makes her different from everybody else in the FBI is that they are just clinically here's a dead body, here's the facts of this dead body, let's take photos of this dead body, let's measure things on this dead body, and they're just seeing the dead body, you know, the the autopsy scene, that's part of the reason why it's so gut-wrenching is just, this was a person you know, she had a life, she had a history, and all these men are just kind of gathered around just going through the motions Mm -hmm. and Clarice is the one that's actually there picking up the these minor details and soaking this stuff in and thinking about it and actually treating her as a human being. All that said, that's like a very long-winded way of getting around to the question that I had, which was, in your work, how do you balance out bringing, like, an inner life to your characters and humanizing them and writing everything in a way that doesn't just focus on, like, the procedural angle? As Mm -hmm. much as, like, we enjoy that part of it, how do you, like, build and craft those characters in those moments and like create kind of that human angle to your work well when it comes to anyone who has been a victim whether it's a crime that they survive or they don't survive from i try to you know make sure that their point of view is at least somewhat respected even if it's not the main focus like if it's an investigator who's the lead not the victim but in the novel coming out, Shadowcast, Maddie is the friend who has been missing for 12 years, and we get to see who she was through 
some flashbacks and, and memories for, between Dakota, the protagonist, and her friend. So we see what she was like when she was alive and how much she meant to the people around her. But also um, there's, you know, kind of different people have, I guess, a different perspective on, on someone. So like your mother will see you differently than how your boyfriend will see you or how your teacher sees you. And yeah. I try to get all of that from um, people who kind of recollect this missing girl that, you know, she was the perfect student to the teachers, but to the boys who had a crush on her, she was like this unattainable figure. And to her parents, she was loved, but also kind of a burden because she was a product of like a teen pregnancy. So it's like all these different, she was real to so many people in different ways. So yeah. I like when, when stories do that, they show that they had connections to other people and they were more than just like the sum of their parts. Yeah, that's another thing I appreciate about this movie. All the characters have a life and history outside the margins of the story that you're seeing. And you get so many different angles and bits and pieces, even for the minor characters, like you have a sense of who they are. But I, I like what you're saying about looking at characters through a prism and understanding that they are more than just the one thing. You know, they are different things to different people. We all are. And that's one of the things I do enjoy about this movie, about all the characters, is just everybody has a different take on them. Like Hannibal Lecter, you can look at him like on the surface for who he is to the tabloids, for who he is to Dr. Chilton. You know, to Dr. Chilton, he is, you know, a notch in his belt. He's a trophy hanging on the wall. Yeah, like that's how Chilton sees Hannibal Lecter and definitely understands that he is dangerous, but because Chilton is in possession of him, essentially, Chilton feels that he is at that same level. But then, you know, Hannibal Lecter is definitely looked at differently by Crawford and by Clarice, you know, and Clarice is the same way. Everybody's kind of seeing her and observing her in different ways. Well, there are so many moments in the movie even, and this kind of might go more into like just the general sexism that's shown throughout the movie and people constantly hitting on her, but there are so many shots in this movie where it's, she's in a, a room full of men and they all just stop and they do almost like that anxiety, fear, like meme you see of like everyone looking at you with like, who is this person? But like there's so many moments in the movie where like she's in the center of a room with a group of men and they all just quietly are staring just at her. literally happens. Yeah, like and yeah. It, it happens like through, there are three or four shots where it's like her in the middle and all these men around her and they're all just focused on her. And then with Hannibal and Crawford, the, those two never are on the screen together. Like they never talk to each other, but just from the way Hannibal and Crawford both talk about the other character to Clarice, you get the sense that there's a real frenemy rivalry relationship between the two of them. You get that there's a sense of history, which yeah. technically there there is from Red Dragon. It's just never explicitly outlined in this story. Yeah, but like that's the thing. Yeah, you don't need that. Sounds of Lambs just yeah. sets that up through pieces of dialogue, but they don't go out right and be like, "Now let me tell you the story that I captured Hannibal in this long like criminal investigation." No, no, no. Like it's all just like, "Oh, that bastard Crawford sent a student," or like, "Oh, I know if I did this to Hannibal, he would have seen this coming a mile away." Like Crawford and Hannibal definitely have a history together, definitely know each other really well, but like they never even see each other on the screen. I, I think that's just great character work and great dialogue. So V, earlier you had kind of mentioned with Dead Letters, there was this kind of small side in the idea, the concept of what a dead letter actually is, and you connected the dots there and put things together. Was there anything like that with your novel coming out? And again, for our listeners, that Shadowcast 
Beast, which can be pre-ordered at blackrosewriting.com, dropping February 25th. But was there like a, a focal point with the writing of Shadowcast? Was it in any way kind of inspired beyond like the Clarice character by the Silence of the Lambs? Or was it something different even? Well, I've, I've always like, well, when it comes to strong female characters, she's definitely Clarice's one of the inspirations as well as someone like um, Lisbeth Slender from The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo yeah. and the other uh, various novels in that series. But as far as this, um, I'm very interested in multiple perspectives of the same situation. So each chapter opens with the perspective of the perpetrator and then switches to Dakota, the investigator. So we get a sense of who knows what about each other and about the case and what actually happened in reality. What do they think happened? And it's kind of like you as a reader have to put perpetrator and investigators perspectives together and also they have to figure each other out to try to achieve their goals of you know not being discovered versus actually solving the case and bringing someone to justice yeah and that's interesting because you'd said earlier too that the more terrifying stuff in this movie to you is are are those scenes with buffalo bill and that kind of sounds like a similar well more novel format uh the idea of kind of like showing the perpetrator point of view at first and kind of a glimpse into what's actually happening with that whole process and that's something that with this movie that I felt like that does that it it didn't feel so nothing in this movie to me felt like it was an unnecessary scene or an unnecessary piece of dialogue going back to like how much of a masterpiece this movie is and the stuff that always gets like joked about with this movie is the Buffalo Bill stuff like the would you fuck me I'd fuck me and all that kind of stuff but I think those scenes also have their purpose because I don't think they're meant to be exploitative or to catch people off guard or shock value I think they are meant to just show you kind of what we all like a lot of us deep down inside like to watch with true crime stuff sometimes is the process what makes these people tick and like why are they doing this yes they are wrong but we want to know why they're wrong and we're kind of fascinated with their viewpoint of the world and that's kind of what I felt like the scenes with Buffalo Bill were like Um, I don't know if you two agree with me in any way or not yeah I definitely I liked seeing uh, the inner world of any character really but especially if they have sinister intent it's really fascinating to know where they're coming from and with the infamous dance scene I liked even though it's humorous in some extent it also kind of humanizes Buffalo Bill which I know he has a real name but I'm just gonna call him that everyone kind of like when we think we're alone like we might just like dance around the house or like randomly sing a song that's in our head without even absolutely knowing it or we might put on like an outfit and be like oh this looks good or oh this looks terrible and he's doing that he's you know he's dancing around and he's you know putting on almost like a a costume and even though it's really actually you know like the hair is a scalped woman and that makes it sinister but there's still like an underlying real thing of him being alone being like oh I'm just gonna put on my favorite song and dance around my house and (laughs) I hate to make this remark Uh, another thing I noticed with those scenes is some of that music he listened to was pretty awesome i don't know like what artist i mean some of the music he listens to is stuff that i listen to like the fall i know that's what I, like, yeah yeah buffalo bill is by the way it's ted levine playing buffalo bill in this movie yeah yeah i think now you know in 2021 30 years after this movie has come out buffalo bill is definitely still the most complicated character the messiest character the most definitely the most problematic problematic because yeah. it, it is it is a bit of like cross-dresser slash trans equals evil which you know that is very problematic
problematic. Yeah, I mean, that troop has certainly been around for a long time, and it's always been problematic. It's one of those things where, like, Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter, like, you love him. He's playing to fucking 11. You know, it's definitely, like, a way insane performance looking back at it now. Clarice is definitely the central figure that you like. She's great. Foster's performance is great. Ted Levine, I think, brings a lot to the role, and he did research, and he spoke with people in the trans community. He definitely brought a lot to that role that makes it very grounded and interesting, and as much as the role is clowned on, like, I have certainly done the, like, you know, no, she a great big fat person. Like, everybody's, like, made the Buffalo Bill joke right there's still something so terrifying about that character in how unknowable the character really fully is this is something that heather and i discussed beforehand you know how much of that is brought to the role by levine how much is brought by the screenwriter ted talley how much was in the original novel how much is maybe even just the production design going like way too edgy like there is a nazi flag hanging up in the basement wall the blanket that he like pulls that revolver out of has like swastikas on it right what is that what is that about what is that angle you know he was in the military we also see later yeah there's these little things that you like see and the movie doesn't explain them the movie doesn't try to square it it's almost like the fictional version of like when manson carved a swastika in his forehead like is that really an aspect of who he is or like and that's what i'm saying like that's what heather and i were talking about was like the movie definitely goes out of its way to say Buffalo Bill is not explicitly a transsexual. To the point where Lecter literally says that, like, in one thing. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, they, it's it's made literal that that's not what's going on, even though, like, elements of that are still there. But, you know, we also know that, like, he was former military, he saw combat, and again, like, stuff like the Nazi imagery, like, I can't remember that being in the novel. You know, it's been years since I've read it, but, like, it's in the movie was that just all stuff that was dumped into the production design to make him seem that much more evil and aberrant and like weird and you know but it's stuff that's unknowable and it's not explained and to me that is scary you know it's made textual in the movie obviously it's there but you know you don't know like how does that square with him how does that square with his thought process his ideology it was purposeful but you'll never know the purpose Mm -hmm. but you'll never know why and to circle back around to what V said, this movie is not giving you his perspective. You are voyeuristically observing him. Mm -hmm. You know, you're observing him in those private moments, like V was saying, where he's dancing and he's having this, you know, moment where he thinks he's alone and he's doing this stuff and he's kind of, you know, exploring and kind of in his own head and you see these moments of him doing all of his weird, creepy serial killer work while Catherine Martin is in the pit. You're observing him, but you are never seeing his perspective. Mm -hmm. You're never seeing things through his eyes. He doesn't give giant big villain monologues. You know, the closest that you have to that is the exchange between him and Catherine Martin in the pit. And it's really more just, you know, him yelling at her and giving her directions and trying to have that sense of control and her fighting back. But there's not a, this is why I'm doing this to you. This is what my purpose is. This is what you mean to me. Like, you don't get any of that from that character. And... All of that certainly complicates the character and makes the character problematic
problematic, like from the trans standpoint, because all of that is messy. And I am certainly not qualified to really speak or give my opinion on any of that. But it is one of the things that I think makes him an effective villain and terrifying because he is unknowable. You will never know what makes him tick. And it's not just the, like, trans equals evil angle. Him being trans or not being trans is not what makes him aberrant. It's not what makes him other. It's not what makes him dangerous. That just happens to be an aspect of him. What makes him dangerous is he fucking murders people. That's what makes him truly evil is he is murdering people. Well, not just murdering, but doing this whole, like, almost ritual. Because they, they say, like, his actual act of killing them is fast. It's like a gunshot. He doesn't rape them. He... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's like a product thing. Yeah, but there's still a process that is torturous on the victim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as serial killers go, like, there is a process there, but it is more that he is a product killer. Yeah. Because yeah. the end goal is he wants the skins. Yeah. But that's one thing that is... I think fascinating and frustrating and terrifying about serial killers in real life is we often don't know. We never learn what makes them tick. Samuel Little is, we think now, maybe the most prolific serial killer known, and he just fucking died in prison of cancer. We will never know fully his story. We will never fully know his motivations. We will never know what made him tick. That's the reason why Zodiac is still so terrifying because we just will never know what was going on with that person. And on this idea of monsters, I thought about some of the stuff you'd mentioned earlier and kind of this also goes into a little bit of Aaron, what you were saying with the dead girl trope. Um, I remember reading a while back because I, I, I noticed that like in a lot of the video games I'd been playing playing recently a lot of the horror stuff I've been reading usually the focal main protagonist is a woman and oftentimes horror has been both progressive and degressive when it comes to gender dynamics and everything and so I'd, I remember kind of looking stuff up about the history of like gender in horror movies and it kills me I cannot because I was trying to like google it while you were talking Aaron I cannot find the person who wrote this but uh, it was this feminist author and she was writing that part of the reason why female main characters dead girl trope all that kind of stuff is still very much in horror today even though horror has become leaps and bounds more progressive is it just all boils down to the old trope of old school like 1930s 40s 50s sci-fi movie monster like carrying a woman like king kong almost carrying a woman and how there's even a little bit of eroticism in that image and it's just so fascinating then to kind of come around all the way from that idea of a monster chasing a woman being this vaguely erotic thing that connects with viewers all the way to silence of the lambs where you have clarice solving the serial killer case but at the end of the day the serial killer is still targeting women you still have Catherine in the pit and v something you had mentioned earlier with one of the things that's disappointing about the books is not only Clarice's relationship with Hannibal, but Hannibal becoming basically a supervillain. The thing is, we don't, he already is a supervillain in The Silence of the Lambs. And this is both a double-edged sword we have with true crime is we are getting a better understanding of serial killers, but at the same time, we sometimes, not even sometimes, we often make the mistake of making these people out to be supervillains, where the true supervillain is the fictional Hannibal Lecter. But then when you actually look at these people, who they are in real life, they're losers. They are pathetic people who do these horrible acts for whether they it was had something to do with childhood, whatever. Uh, that's the thing. You don't need to go much further than with Hannibal Lecter 
connector in terms of fictionalizing this whole idea. I don't know exactly what my point was here, but I just kind of wanted to like tie all that together with the things that both y'all had been saying. Yeah, I mean, I see that, that there's a problem that sometimes when we study them because of our fascination and our desire to want to, I guess, prevent it in the future, that if we see someone behaving, you know, a certain way, we see wait, one dead woman victim, that there's a chance that this could be like a, a problem, that this pattern could repeat, where that may not, like, in the 30s or 40s, the finding one dead female body, it could have been, they would not have instantly thought this could be a pattern. It would have been, oh, a boyfriend got mad or something. So in our desire to want to prevent future crimes, we might get too fascinated with people who are actually losers or just on the margins of society, not necessarily because, you know, like society put them there, but because they've done something to warrant that and that we shouldn't treat real life serial killers like Hannibal Lecter, like some almost demigod who is so smart and knows everything. Celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm not above this. I know for a fact I get fascinated with this kind of stuff and I get fascinated with the idea of a serial killer and what makes them tick. I brought it up several episodes ago as one of my recommendations. Aaron, you had done it on one of our first episodes. I loved Mindhunter and my favorite scenes in Mindhunter are the scenes where they're interviewing these various serial killers. Funny thing is they usually get like comedians to play these serial killers but like I just find that all fascinating. I love the interviews with Charles Manson. Like I just I am part of that problem myself and I have to watch it. Charles Manson wasn't a supervillain, even though like it's hard not to characterize him as that given like his larger than life personality, at least in those interviews. Yeah. Another aspect that I enjoy about this movie, as far as grounding things in reality, kind of like I mentioned earlier, you often and you still see so many movies where law enforcement, military detectives, like whoever the like hero character is, they are be all end all perfect, infallible, never wrong, etc. Everything is justified, right? Like one thing I do appreciate about this movie is often and so does Manhunter show that they get things wrong the detectives are people and they're fallible just like anybody else they're not super cops just like the villains are not super villains in real life you know they are still just people they are deeply flawed people but they are not these larger than life supernatural beings the detectives in this story are regular people they're flawed Clarice has all the same fear and anxiety and makes the same mistakes that we all do again like you mentioned earlier the scene of her stumbling around in the dark in buffalo bill's basement is terrifying because you are just like oh my god she's gonna like trip she's gonna fall on something she's gonna like make some kind of mistake because you know exactly what that's like to wander around your house in the dark at night right and then the predator is the one that makes the mistake because he cocks his gun like right behind her yeah and then her training kicks in and but i i like the fact that this movie shows there are flaws in the system and that the FBI agents are not perfect and that they make mistakes. To your point that Jack Crawford, the one who is set up as kind of the super cop mentor, takes a whole team on an airplane to the wrong location. Mm -hmm. The cross editing in that scene is so 
fucking good. Yeah. And the way Clarice solves it is is just closing out her leads in that Ohio town or wherever that town is. Yeah. She takes the pieces that she has and she puts them all together to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. The cross editing in that scene is Oh, amazing. it's fantastic. Yeah. The misdirect there is fantastic. But I like that you see the flaws inherent in the system and how they get things wrong and how, you know, initially, like a lot of the hunches that they have about the killer end up being incorrect. They go off in the wrong directions. So, I mean, it brings a sense of reality to it because in real life, that happens. In real life, they don't get it right all the time. In real life, information is maybe, you know, misinterpreted and they go off, you know, in the wrong direction and a killer goes free or a killer is never found or justice is just never brought because of mistakes made by the people who were like trying to get things done. Human nature, ego, selfishness. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff gets in the way too. And that's something that's enjoyable to see here is how Clarice kind of navigates all of that with Hannibal Lecter, but also has to navigate all of that with her own team. You know, she is having to navigate those waters and figure out how to get what she needs, get where she needs to go, do the work within the system that she's in. The scene specifically where Jack Crawford pulls the good old boy bullshit with her at the funeral home. And she calls him out for it rightfully in the car afterward. Like that whole scene I love because it's just showing like, hey, the reason why we have to do this bullshit, the reason why you had to do that trick, the reason why you had to manipulate those other guys is because you won't just quit doing the thing. If you would stop perpetuating that behavior, you know, this would be a lot more straightforward. You wouldn't have to do this. Well, it's the two worded line. It matters. That's what struck me the most is it matters. This all matters like what you're doing because it's both you're cutting me out of the case for good old boy bullshit. But at the same time, if we are going to be treated as equals, you doing that stuff matters. It, It sets us back in that regard. Another interesting thing, too, and this is more just again, like this kind of stems out of what we were just talking about, but something that is too true to life is how often crimes are not really given their full due and weight and justice is prolonged to victims because the system inherently is not paying attention to them. It's overlooking them purposely designed to not care about those victims. Notice that the FBI has been just stacking up bodies this entire time and just women are dying left and right. They're just going through the motions. They're just stacking the next file on top of the next file and these women are losing their lives, right? And it literally takes a senator's daughter, like oops, Buffalo Bill kidnapped the wrong girl this time. Now there's all this political pressure. There's all this pressure from the top down on the FBI to get this figured out. So now everybody's in overdrive trying to figure out what's going on and solve these murders because somebody important, in air quotes, was captured this time. And, you know, obviously the reality is all these women were important. They were all people. None of them were less than this new girl, you know, but it's the fact that there is a power system there that inherently does not necessarily care in the same way until somebody that they deem to be important is affected. The senator's daughter is now kidnapped and oh my God, the president is putting pressure on the FBI to get this figured out. And it's the same thing that happens in so much true crime in real life as well too where marginalized groups are victims and just never get their justice nothing ever happens 
because the system is just not paying attention to them. They talk about the less than dead, you know, when they refer to these marginalized groups. People like the Grim Sleeper in L.A., you know, murdered countless prostitutes of color and nobody paid attention because, oh, these are black prostitutes. You know, like we're just not paying attention to that. But the joke's always been like, let one pretty white college girl get murdered and like, oh my God, the whole country is focused on that. And that dynamic, as aggravating as that is and as much as we like still see that shit happening, this movie calls attention to it in kind of a low-key way that I think is interesting because this movie was such a big hit and such like a mainstream pop culture thing, like bringing that kind of idea to the forefront and at least helping get that conversation moving and started is interesting because as much as this movie seems like a very safe and tame movie 30 years later at the time, like this movie was a big deal. I don't know about that. (laughs) This movie still felt dangerous. Mm -hmm. This time around, it felt more obvious that they were paying special attention to Catherine. I guess in the last like few times I've watched it, I just kind of felt like, haha, Bill, you did take the wrong girl this time, so you're going to get caught. Now it feels so much more apparent now that I'm older and also like the world's a little different that it's just like class is the reason why she is in connections. Totally. And I also wonder that since his other victims were even white females who were poor, I also wonder if they didn't get as much attention because they weren't stereotypically attractive because he went after bigger women because he wanted their skin. If they had been like a hot 20 year old that looked like a Barbie, maybe that first girl would have gotten like the nation's attention, but because they were poor and kind of just looked like an average person, he was able to like fly under the radar until he gets the wrong girl. And when he abducts Catherine, her apartment building does not look like, you know, the Shangri-La it looks like a very middle class or working yeah. class. So I think he thinks, oh, this is just another nobody, quote unquote, like this, you know, just another middle class or poor girl. The cops aren't going to care this time, like the rest of the times. I don't know why she's, I mean, if her mother's relatively well connected, I don't know why she's living, I guess, lower than her quote unquote station, but maybe she's, you know, trying to strike it out all on her own, which would be cool. Yeah, I, I got that off of just a little bit of characterization we get with her, of her in her car singing to Tom Petty and all that that it sounds like she really is trying to like you had said just strike it down on her own like just kind of trying to have her own life separate from her mother's yeah I get the impression like she probably doesn't jive with the rest of her family mm-hmm. anyway yeah. you know yeah and I mean that goes to like how well the characters are drawn and this is there's nothing explicitly stated about her motivations or backgrounds or anything but like you get those impressions just by how the characters positioned and a lot of the like contextual stuff stuff surrounding the characters you just feel like you know so much about them v that's a really good point something i hadn't really considered is this is like his fifth or sixth victim he obviously does go to like these kind of lower class lower not lower class but lower middle class kind of middle of nowhere maybe apartment buildings or areas that are otherwise forgettable to quote unquote hunt but another thing too in that scene and this kind of goes into like me thinking this was my actual first time watching this start to finish 
fish they show that cat in her like window and for some reason i thought he was gonna wait to abduct her like in her apartment and i was just like oh man here we go with another dead cat <laughs> and then later on in the movie with i do remember her like getting her hands on on precious his dog but i couldn't remember what exactly happens to precious and i was just like another horror movie another freaking dead animal here we go <laughs> yeah hopefully um the dog went on to live a perfectly good life with Catherine. i don't know maybe she also ditched that fucking dog that dog has seen some shit <laughs> yeah so who knows there i don't remember there being any footnotes in the novel about what happened to the dog afterward well precious also seemed to really like bill and you gotta know that bill like fed precious parts of people right well that's that's also <laughs> kind of one of those interesting things about bill's character again is just seeing definitely methodical but there's there's an interesting side to him where yeah he treats that dog with the utmost care and concern he is raising these very delicate very temperamental bugs these moths that are imported and have to be fed a certain way like he goes through all of these specific steps because he cares about these things he's fascinated with these things and you see that side of him and then you see again like the swastika blanket and the like lady suit that he's stitching together and it's just so hard to like see those two things juxtaposed and figure out you know the why like what is going on you know with this person well and to that point too i think it also makes him inadvertently even more well not even inadvertently probably purposely even more of a monster because he cares way more about that dog than the women that he has in his pit yeah and that it puts the lotion on the skin scene he calls her it the entire time he doesn't even view them as people at that point just as the product of what this whole process is going to be but then precious seems like his world when she gets precious in the pit to the point where he's flipping the fuck out and like grabs his gun ready to like do something about it yeah it's also a moment where he loses control everything about his house his basement everything is purposely crafted and designed to be in his control the entire time and that's one of the things about serial killers in general that makes them so scary and frankly like this entire movie is about control and transformation but the fact that you know serial killers explicitly force their will and worldview onto others in the most extreme way possible kind of as a means of controlling like their environment and getting rid of the people that they see unfit to be around them breathing the same air like that's very much Hannibal's thing is you know he kills these people that he deems to be you know rude or an affront to good taste or whatever that is way played up in the Hannibal TV show just anybody everybody that he like disagrees with gets offed or that kind of rubs him the wrong way or coughs during the middle of a recital or something like that it's it's also about controlling your inner urges and having to like externalize that control onto other people like because you struggle to control your own urges you have to like force that control onto other people and shaping the world kind of as they see fit like that's what's terrifying about serial killers and so when you have those moments where buffalo bill like loses control for like a brief moment that's where you truly see him like flip the fuck out is when the dog's down there that's where he like truly loses it because that is his control and his will being challenged finally well and he also loses a little bit when she like 
keeps refusing to put the lotion on the skin and then put it and also as well. One of the scariest moments in that entire movie to me is that scene where she's screaming and he starts mock screaming mocking back at her like that is just so fucking unsettling. Something else I wanted to touch on uh, V again with Hannibal Lecter's supervillain. I do think each scene has a purpose. Nothing seems unnecessary. However, I would say probably the most bananas scene and maybe even my least favorite scene this movie is Hannibal's escape because that is like the closest to a super villain esque escape as I've ever seen and to the point where the cops are so fucking unqualified and not knowing what the hell they're doing they treated Hannibal in the earlier scenes like in the airport meeting the center like having fucking like national guard around with snipers but then you send these two like fucking moron cops to give him his food and they're entering his cage to give him his food what did you expect happen but like all of that and then like them finding the body of the cop and it's made in that monument he's basically turned into furniture that was all kind of eye rolly what did y'all think about that so my favorite scene in the movie is around that it's actually when they see the elevator move that way the way it should that's a good scene because yeah. you don't know i mean i think it's a little over the top for i mean hannibal in general is over the top but that the murders yet yeah, they are two super villainy especially the one that he kind of hangs up like an eagle yeah. almost in the America banner. But yeah, just like the like something small being wrong, like the elevator moving and going up to a floor that it no one should be on is so like small and unsettling that under, you know, a normal circumstance, it wouldn't be an elevator doing its thing, whatever, but it means that like the biggest serial killer or the most dangerous one is free and them all panicking just watching it go to 5 and then go back down is I think really great suspense writing, but the like the level the pageantry of um, his escape goes a little over the top. And also, I kind of feel like when it comes to realism, the most dangerous time to be around a flight risk criminal is during a transfer. I don't understand why they didn't just bring the senator to him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of that has to go with what's his face again, the guy who tortures Hannibal and like uses him. Chilton. Yeah. I think that was all his call for some reason. Yeah. That seems like the kind of boneheaded move that he would have, you know, put together. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that scene from a like technical filmmaking standpoint. Like it is great suspense. The editing in that entire sequence is fantastic. It is a thrilling sequence to watch, but I'll kind of agree with you to the point that in the larger story, you could basically excise that scene and still keep the framework of the larger narrative intact and then just, oh, by the way, he got out like at the end. You know, you don't necessarily have to see the entire escape, but it it is a great piece of filmmaking. So to a degree, you don't need it. But at the same time, like I'll take it all day long. Yeah, no, like I I still think it fits. It's ridiculous, but it's definitely one of those things that like adds to the like camp factor of this movie to a degree. Yeah, I still think it fits, but it is the most ridiculous aspect, I think, of the entire film but to both of y'all's point even with that elevator scene because v you're absolutely right just like seeing the tension on the cops build and build and just all of them like positioning themselves in front of the elevator and then even when the elevator arrives and like opens up and there's nothing in there but then they slowly see that blood is starting to drip down when they're like escorting the body out which turns out to be hannibal all of that was really suspenseful and good the thing the two things that i i roll my eyes at the most which at the same time i also kind of enjoy from a like just a 
trash horror standpoint is the person turned into like a furniture slash flag if you thing. don't like that if you think that that's ridiculous, no no i like that but i like it for a ridiculous reason that i think is almost a little too much for this okay. film in the context of this film I, I was about to say if you don't dig that you are going to never like the hannibal tv show because that, oh, that no, no. every do, every episode that. of the hannibal tv show is like someone's human furniture how can we <laughs> fucking mutilate and turn a human body into something ridiculous yeah it's like ed Gein times a thousand yeah like yeah. I, I do dig that but in the context of this film i mean so like that's a little eye rolly in the context of this film but I, it is kind of ridiculous but like him turning into like yeah like you were saying that eagle thing uh, with the body well i think it's kind of the one good moment of you've heard about all these ridiculous things that he has about done. Hannibal. You've heard about how dangerous it is. Yeah. Well, like here you here's go. Here's what he can here's do. A taste. Yeah. Like just for fuck's sake, he splays this guy out and butterflies him out. Like literally turns him into a moth just as a cherry on top. Fuck you. Bye. I'm getting out of here. And then the second thing that kind of made me roll my eyes, but I also thought was pretty cool was peeling off the face mask of the oh, person yeah, absolutely. in the back of the uh, ambulance. But yeah, those are the two things I was just like, maybe almost a little too much for the rest of the context of this film. But I do want to watch the Hannibal TV series, and I am going in fully knowing and expecting everyone to be turned into human furniture. (laughs) The Hannibal in this is kind of like a human Chekhov's gun, because we know that he's like this (laughs) killing machine. And if you don't let the killing machine at least kill once during the course of the film, then his reputation doesn't do anything. You have to see him do the thing that makes him terrifying at least once, or you're just hearing it from other people. Yeah, there's an aspect too about that that's just briefly touched on in this film that, and this is a trope I kind of do dig. It's not one that I see very often, but like after Clarice sees him the first time and Migs literally throws cum at Clarice and he calls her back and says like, wait a minute, like, you know, follow up on this patient of mine, come back and see me and then like later on we find out that he basically talked Migs the person in the cell next to him who we can assume was also some kind of crazy serial killer rapist he talks him into swallowing his own tongue and killing himself just through talking to him through the the wall and that kind of adds to the mystique of Hannibal as still being severely dangerous even behind closed doors to the point where it's almost like he is a Batman villain is what I thought but then I remembered there's actually a Batman story that Paul Dini wrote I think and it was a scarecrow story in which scarecrow somehow got access to the speakers in arkham asylum and just started talking through them and caused five of the people in arkham asylum to commit suicide just from like talking to them and like he's treated basically like hannibal lecter throughout that entire storyline so yes at the end of the day what y'all both had said like him being a Chekhov's gun like you need to see him killing like you need to see how dangerous he really is it makes me kind of reassess those scenes a little bit more and be like, okay, maybe they aren't as eye-rolly as I think they are. But the trope I was going to bring up that I do wish I saw a little bit more of is like serial killers judging other serial killers. Because <laughs> like I get that idea that like Hannibal has even like been the therapist for other serial killers. I mean, that's just straight up said with Bill, right? That he basically, Bill was one of his patients. Yeah. Well, that's also heavily, heavily an angle of the TV show as well as several of his other patients kind of go on to do fucked up things. Yeah. You're making me really want to watch that TV show again. Oh, the TV show. So Brian Fuller was the showrunner for the TV show, and it is 
full camp. Like, it is just judgmental and, like, talking shit about other people constantly. Well, I want it to be, like, other serial killers doing it to each other. Like, that's oh, the that, thing. That's like, what I'm saying. That definitely happens a lot in the show, yeah. There's a lot of Hannibal, like, oh, yeah, this person's methods are uh, <clears throat> pedestrian. Like, it's that yeah. kind of bullshit, you know, where he has that, like, higher than thou. And that's kind of a thing, like, from the beginning. This isn't a spoiler for that show, but you have this other killer that they're, like, consulting with him on, and then... And he'll kind of commit a murder and it will be like this one up fuck you no you think <laughs> you're smart killer. like here you go here's some <laughs> wild shit for you see I like that because one of the things that always made me laugh was hearing about how I think it was who was it was Edmund Kemper and BTK were like cellmates at one point or next to each other on the same ward god that had to be miserable it was something like that and the other one was like that guy sucks I hate him <laughs> like I think it was Edmund Kemper saying like BTK is a piece of shit get him away from me yeah that sounds fucking miserable but to your point i guess that is something that i guess because this is fictional and this character is kind of larger than life we can enjoy hannibal lecter like as a character we can enjoy watching him do his thing because it is kind of this weird way of letting out a little bit of the pressure and anxiety of the real life horrors of real life serial killers and the real life fucked up things that have happened you can get a little bit of entertainment value and dark humor even out of Hannibal Lecter because I mean it's again Anthony Hopkins is great in the role but it's very over the top at this point it's so over the top the no blinking standing perfectly straight like it's just such a ridiculous performance in hindsight and it's interesting looking at the other actors that have played Hannibal Lecter Brian Cox played him in Manhunter and it's a very different it is kind of the definition of the banality of evil he has such a different way of line delivery he is not that manicured very stiff straight he doesn't have the body mannerisms of anthony hopkins most of the time he's like slumped over in his cell just kind of relaxing talking um it's a very different feel mads mickelson's take on the character in the show is also very different so it's interesting seeing different sides of that same character and again like you can kind of enjoy with a weird ride smile watching him as a character work oh it's the same reason why people are so drawn to like the joker again coming from batman there's so many different ways you can approach the joker but at the end of the day the joker is a mass murdering like serial killer clown yeah and to your point as well it's also one of those things where hannibal lecter is helpful as often as he is dangerous and as often as he is causing harm directly and throwing wrenches into the works he is also helping move things along and helping catch other killers and helping like these other people solve things or work through issues and that kind of friend or foe aspect of him is also very intriguing because you typically don't get that from a lot of other serial killers especially in serial killer movies where it focuses more on the abject side of the serial killer and it focuses on the methodology of the serial killer and less of their inner lives and that's something that I'm excited to see in your book V specifically is just some of the back and forth like you mentioned of perspectives getting both sides of the same story and how those things are interpreted that's something that I'm definitely interested in I you know now that you said like that's kind of some of the framework of the book I'm, I'm very intrigued to check it out when it comes out what kind of character in this movie or in this story in general would you classify 
quite Hannibal. He's not quite the main antagonist. He's definitely not a protagonist. Is he... I'm trying to think of the term for it. It was a big upset that Anthony won the Oscar for leading male because I don't think there actually is a leading male in this movie, but it's kind of hard to see how you would classify him. But to me, he's a, a side character, maybe like almost like a mentor slash catalyst in his function with Clarice, but he's not a like a leading man. Yeah. Either way, with this movie, you have two of the strongest characters, but honestly, I'm more impressed, and I know this is a take that probably a lot of people have, but most people do navigate towards Hannibal, and yes, it is good, it's iconic, etc., etc., but honestly, Jodie Foster's work as Clarice as the protagonist of this film is even more impressive to me than Hannibal. It's just such a well-rounded character, and Jodie captures her agency so goddamn well throughout this entire thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely, kind of like I mentioned earlier, that's the strength of Manhunter and Red Dragon, like those stories as well. Will Graham is a very interesting and flawed and deeply scarred character who's having to work with Hannibal again, and they have a history together. But Hannibal is in the story even less than he is in Silence of the Lambs. But he is still there in much the same way to kind of be this plot catalyst and way for the main character to exposit their inner fears and anxieties and work through some of that stuff. And again, kind of like I mentioned, that's a lot of where I think the series falls apart is once the focus shifts from these central leads who are trying to figure things out to just being the Hannibal show 24-7. Like, that's, to me, kind of where things fall apart. Because the other two novels are not nearly as strong as the first two. And the show does a good balance of Will Graham and Hannibal, and frankly, all the other supporting cast members, too. Lawrence Fishburne plays Jack Crawford. That's such good casting. And he's fucking fantastic that. in that show. Gillian yeah. Anderson shows up as well. So there's a good chunk of people. But that show is definitely worth checking out. Out. Okay, cool, cool. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get things wrapped up from here. Once again, thank you, VP Morris. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for having me. And once again, you can check out Dead Letters Podcast at Dead Letters Pod on Twitter. And show links are on the Twitter, mm-hmm. last I checked. Be sure to check out her book and pre-order it called Shadowcast, again at Black Rose Writing. That drops February 25th. I'm going to put in my pre-order after we record. Is this your first published standalone novel? Yes, this is my first uh, novel that will be published. But I know you have done short stories that have been published. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say, yeah, I did. Um, I wrote a few articles for uh, Nightmare on Film Street. I also wrote a few short stories. Some of them have won awards. I have the Dead Letters podcast, and I also have various other novels that I'm in the process of working on and getting published. So there are things happening. Awesome. What are some of the short stories and maybe even some of the articles from Nightmare on Film Street that people could go check out? Let's see. Um, my, I guess, favorite short, short story thus far is called Bloodsucker and it's about a woman who wakes up after nightmares each night with leeches all over her body and she has to figure out what is going on. I also, um, on the Nightmare Film Street one, you can like search by author. I'm VP Morris on there. I think my favorite one is like a a horror movie location
locations you can visit in real life, including like the Exorcist stairs and the beach from Jaws. The graveyard from Night of the Living Dead is on there. Nice. And uh, the Amityville house, as well as the Nightmare on Elm Street house. I just pulled it up and I saw that you have like the Dakota from Rosemary's Baby, the house from It Follows. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. I'll have to look through this article later. But um, one last quick thing. I just was browsing through your work on Nightmare on Film Street. I saw that you wrote an article called Six True Crimes That Deserve Their Own Horror Movies. The Monster of Florence is one in which that was popularized uh, mm-hmm. a little bit in Hannibal. And you also have Richard Chase and The Missing 411 on this list. So I, I, this is another article I'm going to have to read through because those are two other stories that are fucking insane and wouldn't make for good horror movies. Did you have anything else you wanted to plug that I may have missed? Uh, no, that's it. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. My handle um, outside of the Dead Letters podcast is at T Wright Repeat, spelled T E A W R I T E Repeat. So if anyone wants to check me out in the stuff that I have, I'm relatively active on both of those platforms. So, you know, follow and interact. I'm around. Awesome. Thank you once again for being on uh, uh, this big show, frankly. This is a big episode for us. And with that, we are Watch If You Dare. You can catch us on our socials at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. We are at all the major pod catchers, Apple, Stitcher, Podchaser. All our links are on our Podbean website. Check out our Spotify playlist pinned to our Twitter and now on our Podbean website under our links section if you want to listen to some spooky tunes to set you in the mood. Thanks to your little brother jesse mansfield he's at party gator on Bandcamp for our bumps at the beginning and end of each episode please rate review subscribe we've been getting a lot of reviews and ratings which is crazy especially on Podchaser and apple aaron you got anything else nope that's about it so of all the lines in this movie we could do to close things out but i guess just the most obvious is good evening sally